1: Welcome to Frau Pow, where your hosts, Aden Rags. So today we're gonna to talk to RJ, or as I met him, Penis the Menace. Which is the best derby name ever. Best derby name ever. RJ is a delightful human being who struggles presently with addiction because I don't think you ever fully recover from addiction. You're always an addict. And today he shares with us his his journey of realizing that he has a problem and the getting clean and now being clean. And I just think that it's a really powerful story and I'm not going to say too much more because he does a much better job about it than I do.
2: Obviously, hopefully people understand there is a trigger warning. You're going to be talking mm. about um, alcohol and substance abuse and some um, very emotional events leading up to RJ's Recovery.
1: Tell us about yourself. Uh,
0: Well, what would you like to know?
1: (laughs) About you. Who are you? What makes you tick?
0: Well, my name is RJ. I am 43 years old. I am single. (laughs) I have a 15 year old cat named Charlie, who is my best friend and probably will meow at some point in the background because I'm not paying him attention. Um, What else can I tell you? I live in Voorhees, New Jersey. I currently work as a learning specialist at Rutgers University in Camden. So uh, I work there as a learning specialist. I help kids, kids, I mean, they're like 20, on uh, first term and continued probation to help them get above the 2.0 mark so they can graduate successfully. And I do that by changing behaviors. Um, I've also been a private tutor for 26 years since peer tutoring in high school. So I tutor math, English, uh, all the standardized tests, except the LSAT and the MCAT. And um, I'm very happy to be here. And I want to thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, we're very happy to have you. We've been talking about this for weeks. Ooh. Yeah. You're like a hot commodity in the derby world.
0: Uh, well, and of course I left that out. Um, I, I, have been playing roller derby for four years and thank you, by the way, I have been playing roller derby for four years, all with Penn Jersey roller derby, but obviously visiting scrimmages and games wherever I can. Mm-hmm. And, um, and lucky and blessed enough, uh, this past year to have been elected president of the league, which is a monumental task because we have about a hundred people in the league, uh, skaters, officials, referees, volunteers. Uh, but, um, what a what a wild ride, and I wouldn't have it any other way because I love my derby brothers and sisters with all of my heart.
1: Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about how you discovered roller derby?
0: Well, that's part of a larger story, uh, but um, it really comes into play. Uh, it was May 18th. Uh, and this was 2015. I had, and this goes into the the greater story, I had just gotten out of rehab for a drug and alcohol addiction in uh, South Jersey, and life steered me towards a recovery house in northeast Philadelphia in the Frankfurt area where there's one of the oldest AA clubhouses um, around that I think just celebrated its 78th year uh, keeping the doors open for recovering addicts and alcoholics. And I was on um, the L, the, the elevated train, coming back from a meeting in Center City, and I was with my roommate, uh, and uh, we were talking about old dreams. And I said, you know, I, I always wanted to do roller derby, because when I was 12 years old, there was a... A version like a WWF version of roller derby on TV called Roller Games. And uh, Mm -hmm. they had this like figure eight track with a with a a wall of death and a jet jump. And, you know, I'm this 12 year old kid with bad feathered hair, eating potato chips, staring at the screen, being like, oh, I want to do that one day. But, you know, life happened. And that leads us up to that point. And my roommate just turns to me and goes, I know derby people. And I was like, what do you mean you know derby people? He goes, I know derby people. Look up Penn Jersey roller derby. Well, it turns out he used to bartend at the place where the hooligans would go, the male team, mm. um, uh, after or the murder team, I should say, um, would go after their games to to drink to celebrate. So he said look up Penn Jersey Roller Derby and we were at the Gerard stop on the L just coming out from underground. So I I looked it up, I messaged the league and 5 stops later, the vice president at the time, Stella Threat, got back to me and said, "We would love to have you. We're looking for guys. Why don't you come and take a look and see what it's all about?" So that was May 18th and I walked in those doors at 18th and Indiana on May 21st and I never looked back. <laughs>
1: So you're saying that you you found PJRD when you're coming back from an AA meeting. Yes. Um so let's talk about your struggle with addiction.
0: Yes, it was a very long one. I mean in terms of active addiction. Um so I uh, I grew up in South Jersey and I was raised in um in an alcoholic abusive household. My father drank very heavily and um was not very kind behind closed doors i have since come to forgive him realizing that he did the best he could with what he thought was right at the time but um you know i grew up in this household where um i had these two dynamics where my dad would would binge drink and and get out of control um and then my mom was also trying to hold everything in and hold the family together so i had this battling dynamic in the household of lash out or hold it all in, lash out or hold it all in. And I could never, ever find any kind of middle ground or balance. Um, And I also realized in retrospect that I didn't really have any coping skills growing up. My dad died when I was 15. um, And that was like unheard of. No one had ever had a parent die in my town (laughs) before, or at least not that young. Um, So um, I kind of soaked up all the attention from it and, um, and let and let it coast me through high school. But I also used the grief energy and funneled it all into my academics, which ended up affording me a career later on uh, in uh, in education, doing peer tutoring, directing tutoring companies, et cetera. So my brothers were older, and of course still are, the seven and nine years older. So they were already out of the house. One was in law school and one was in the Navy. So, um, you know, I'm growing up with this dynamic. I don't know what to do. Dad dies, and I kind of... I don't know. I felt like I never got the chance to like stand up to him like a man as much as I could have been at 15. Um, And um, I held on to a resentment for him for a very, very long time. Um, I then went to um, I went to NYU, got a a degree in theater and I had started like recreational drug use. I was just coming out of the closet at the time. I was, you know, a theater major. And I was also in New York City after going out of the sheltered suburbs. So like kind of (laughs) you know everything broke loose and and it seemed like fun you know for the time um i um i tossed the cap up from NYU and i moved out to LA to pursue a career in game shows because that's what i had always wanted to do i was i was on uh, double dare when i was 12 and that was great i loved it i loved the lights i loved the games everything and went out there um went on the prices right 147000 dollars in prizes which was awesome and a great story and um and then i started going into um game shows now I worked as a contestant coordinator. So I was flying all over the country getting contestants. Um, but um, the last show I worked on uh, was The Weakest Link. And they have a concert fog machine that makes the, the the set look pretty. Well, it's very toxic in heavy quantities. And I was in an area where um, there was a lot of smoke gathering from pickup shots. And the smoke poisoned me. I ended up with toxic chemical poisoning, ended up with the same toxicologist Aaron Brockovich had from the movie. And, um, and it shut down my liver, my lungs and my bone marrow. One thing led to another. I ended up with a worker's comp suit against a major network. And um, I basically got blacklisted from the industry. No one would talk to me, no one would return my calls. And um, that set off two lawsuits and a host of health problems. It took me a good, I think, five or six months to really recover from that. Um, and then in the meantime, Um, I was dating someone that was, it was not going well and, um, it ended with his committing suicide. Um, so with all of that happening, I basically got put into a perfect storm of, of circumstances and I had no coping skills and I immediately turned to drugs, um, because it seemed like a way to numb the pain. It seemed like an escape. And, um, we're talking specifically about painkillers and crystal meth. Um, which is rampant in the gay community. I think it's also rampant, you know, in various parts of the United States, um, and um, and it and it went south very quickly. Um, you know, I isolated. I I was miserable, um, and I never sought help, um, and, and I just kept on this steady decline, where um, I thought I was going to die like that. And the worst part of it was, I was okay with it. I was okay with like not having any coping skills, not really having any friends, and not knowing what to do. And I stayed like that um, for a good three or four years until I uh, I, I caught a charge uh, driving naked through the Panhandle of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> which not a lot of people know, but they're going to know this now. But you know what? I don't really care nowadays because I consider myself as an open book because if someone's listening to this podcast and can get something out of it or can identify with it in some way or think that maybe there's hope for me too – then that's our primary purpose in the recovery rooms and i I will specifically not mention the recovery programs that i go to it's a violation of tradition so i will not mention them by names but i may mention some of the 12 steps because the 12-step programs are pretty much akin in each or there are various offshoots of them in each program but Mm -hmm. um so i catch this charge and um, i end up on probation well when you're on probation you get urine tested so um i quit doing drugs on my own self will and kind of white knuckled it for the two years that I was on probation. But in the meantime, I started drinking really heavily because if I didn't have one thing to numb me or to make things better in my own mind, I I sought out the next best thing. And then, you know, sometimes it was sex and sometimes it was taking people hostage and sometimes it was drinking. And, um, and I made it through probation somehow, you know, quote unquote unscathed or not getting extradited back to Texas. Um, but, um, One of the conditions of my probation was that I do community service and um, I ended up doing community service at the HIV clinic at 12th and Locust in Philadelphia. And upstairs, there's always this there was always this like laughter and applause and and, you know, yeses coming from upstairs. And I realized I snuck up there one day and it was an AA meeting. And I remember peering around the corner and people are talking about doing this inventory of their moral defects and making amends to people they have wronged and this relationship with a God of their understanding. And I was like, you people are nuts. You're a cult. I want nothing to do with
1: it.
0: <laughs> uh, and um, and I continued out the probation. Uh, the time ended. And as soon as. Uh, the time ended, I was working at a tutoring company in Philadelphia. I would secured a job coming back east. And uh, um, I got fired from that job because the boss was downsizing. But the same scenario happened all over again, but I hadn't worked a program. I had absolutely no tools. And I went right back to it. And I went out hard this time. And this was for a good four years. So in total, my drinking and using uh, totaled about 21 years on and off in one way, shape or form. Um, that was a long, it's a long time to spend. I'm 43 years old. So I spent over half my life in active alcoholism or addiction and, um, things started to get again, really, really bad. I lost a, I lost that job. I lost a second job. I lost a third job. I had to move out of my apartment. I couldn't pay rent. I wasn't making any money and I was spending it all on drugs. Um, I tried to move into this second apartment. My mom was helping me out. God rest her soul. And um, I uh, I ended up having to move back in with her. She's like, just come home, live with me and we'll figure it out. But again, I was hiding things from her. And um, and she didn't quite know it until things got things got so bad that. And here's where it gets real, people. Um, there was uh, there was one day I lied to her told her I was going on a job interview at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night. Like, who the hell goes on a job interview at 6 (laughs) p.m. on a Sunday night? And I took her car out. Keep in mind, it's a car I won for her on the prices, right, 20-some years ago. And um, I promptly used and totaled it. Now, keep in mind, I had absolutely no business driving the car. But um, I I got in the car. I got home at about 2 o'clock in the morning, got the car into the driveway, turned the ignition off, and as soon as I turned the ignition off, I dipped out fell forward and my head hit the horn, uh, waking up one of the neighbors across the street who came over and uh, shook me awake. And I remember very clearly coming to, and I don't even think we said two words to each other. He just had this look on his face like, what the hell are you doing, buddy? Because everyone at that point knew I had a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't willing to admit it. So um, I went back uh, into the house, was screwing around on my phone until the sun came up. And uh, my mom hobbles into the doorway this is the, by the way the nicest lady you would ever ever want to meet hobbles into the doorway with her little cane and she goes what happened to our car? <laughs> like not even my car, what happened to our car? And mm-hmm. you know, like a good alcoholic addict, I don't wanna take the blame for anything. I don't wanna take responsibility. And I just started screaming at her, it's not such a big deal, you don't have to worry about it, you can get it fixed, you have the money. Like what a jerk. And that's not the word that I would be thinking of. I, I <laughs> it's a much more R-rated word. Um, but um, you know, I. I, uh, I just didn't wanna take responsibility for it. And right in the middle of my screaming at her, she just goes deadpan and says that's it i can't take it anymore i'm calling the cops now mm-hmm. i'm a delusional alcoholic addict and i think she's kidding she wasn't kidding <laughs> about three minutes later five Voorhees police officers showed up and said you have to come with us and when i resisted arrest they knocked me down into the ground and while they were handcuffing me i bit one of them really hard right But that's what happens to me when I am. And at this point I was hopped up on Xanax, Percocet, Valium, Molly, weed, GHB, and crystal methamphetamine all at once. Um, and go big or go home. Yeah. Go big or go home. Um, and, um, they cuffed me, they maced me and they dragged me right across the lawn, threw me in a squad car and took me to a place I never thought I would ever be, which is Camden County jail. Um, Mm -hmm. which if you know, Camden listeners, it's, it's not the nicest place. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, um, I, uh, there were about 10 of us in the, in the holding cell and they took us out to gen pop to general population. And nine of us got red jumpers going up to gen pop. And one of us got a green quilted Velcro gown, otherwise known as a turtle suit, um, which meant that I was going to the psych ward, which is exactly where I needed to be. And I remember them pulling that door uh, aside to the ward and my cell was dead ahead. Number 40. And, um, and they're pushing me and pushing me, and I'm screaming and crying, not making any sense of anything. And they pushed me into that cell, and I turned around, I took one step back towards the door, and they shut it, and they locked it. And um, I can still, and this is a good thing, I can still feel the echo of that door shut in my soul, uh, because it reminds me where um, active addiction can take me to. they They say in the programs of recovery that that um that kind of active addiction takes us to three places, jails, institutions, and death. and i I joke that I got two of them. I got an institution in jail.
3: Um,
0: <laughs> uh, but what I did realize was, at that moment, I had a window of opportunity that flew wide open in my life that, that 21 years worth of ripping and running and lying and cheating and stealing, being a general jerk off to anyone who ever cared about me, you know, there was an opportunity for it to be over. And, um, I seized onto it pretty quickly, even though that detox period was a bitch. Um, can I say bitch?
2: (laughs) Yeah, of course. You can can say, yeah, you can say whatever you want. Really?
0: Thank you. Um, so, um, that was that was jail. And um, and I was out of my mind. I, I uh, was under surveillance 24 hours a day. There was no heat, no hot water. It was 20 degrees in there. And um, I remember the psych doctor came down to do an evaluation with me and said, you know, you look like you could use something to read. Would you like that? And I just nodded my head. Yes, I couldn't even speak at this point. I had fried my brain so badly. And he uh, got a beginner's guide to meditation. And I took it right out of his hands and I forfeited the half hour out of the cell I had that day, went back in, sat on the bottom rusted bunk and um, and opened it right to the middle because I'm an addict. I can't start at the beginning of anything. And um, (laughs) staring back at me was um, the St. Francis of Assisi prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of peace. And um, I started to read the book. And the days went by, and I read a little bit more, and I read a little bit more. And I decided one day I was going to try and meditate. And I started to say the prayer in my head, and the words just started to flow. And um, I got to the very last line of the prayer, which was, it is in dying to self that we are granted eternal life. And something happened. Um, I stopped shaking, and my body flooded with this intense warmth. And I can't describe it. I still can't describe it. But I opened my eyes and um, a sunbeam had broken its way through the clouds and was hitting the little slit window of the cell and the whole cell, which was normally this like God awful shade of like, you know, sea green in there was bathed in this golden light. Um, and I opened my mouth and I said the first full sentence of my recovery, which was God, is that you? And, um, I became an, I became a believer in a power greater than myself. Um, and things got a lot better after there because I let go of what I thought was right or what past dreams were. And I realized I have this moment now where I can make something out of this. So I started praying every day and I'm not here to push God on anyone, but this is just my experience. And, um, I read that book, I think another two or three times through, um, and uh, the rest of jail didn't go so badly. And uh, seventy-eight days later, a bed opened at Maryville in South Jersey. Um, and uh, you know, I I get out of jail, and I'm now 39 at the time. I spent my 39th birthday in that psych ward cell, alone, detoxing, hopeless, helpless. And uh, we show up to rehab. Um, And I have two trash bags that my mommy packed for me. And as we're going through admissions, they're going through all my stuff and they're explaining the rules. And it was so weird. Every single person there kept saying to me, keep your ears open because someone here may say something that'll change your life together. I think at least three people said it to me. Hmm. And I went into the day room. Um, and the second day I was there, this guy comes in to do an H&I commitment. It's called Hospitals and Institutions. They bring meetings in. And he starts talking about his alcoholic, abusive father. My ears tuned right in. Um, and uh, he talks about how when he was a kid, his dad would drink and beat them, make life miserable for them. But uh, when the dad didn't drink, like, you know, if the Flyers won or it was payday or I was in a good mood um this guy would take an inventory of all the actions he did as a kid thinking that like whatever he his actions were would prevent his dad from drinking mm-hmm. and all of a sudden like my my addictive behavior all of a sudden like it my <laughs> memories just started flooding back to me i did the same exact thing and it was something that i could never articulate for myself i could never unlock and here's this guy a complete stranger walks into a room, sits down and shares his experience and unlocks 23 years worth of question marks in my head. Um, and I had a, like a nervous breakdown right there in the day room and all the other guys are looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? Right. Um, and uh, it got to be a running joke that later on when I would share in meetings, I would I'd raise my hand and say, I'm RJ, I'm an addict and a box of tissues would fly across the room and hit me in the head. (laughs) Um, but, um, But I started to believe going to rehab that uh, from being in that room and listening to the other guys, that I was not terminally unique, that people suffer from the same problems. I don't care if, you know, we're gay, straight, bi, white, black, bucktooth, cockeyed. I don't care what we are. Addiction doesn't discriminate. The beautiful thing is neither does recovery. And it's available to all of us who need it. Um, So uh, the rest of rehab was great. And um, I feel like I'm totally monopolizing the conversation here.
1: (laughs) You're here to tell your story. Yeah, this is about you. Okay. uh, (laughs) And uh, we're all sitting here, like, (laughs) we're all sitting here going, he's telling a story. That's so. It's, it's honestly, it's really heart touching. And it's, I'm glad that you found the help that you needed because. You're just a wonderful person and you're such a kind soul. And I just
3: love you so much.
0: I love you too.
3: Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever.
0: so rehab happened we had my counselor and i had this grand plan to go to a recovery house that um, we couldn't find any recovery houses they were all booked and uh, but we had this grand plan i was going to go to a um a bunkmate of mine in jail had a room for rent and my my mom and my brother didn't like that they said you're going to do this recovery our way or we're never going to speak to you again and um and i said Them in a family conference at rehab. This was on day 100. I'll never forget it. I said, Listen, one of two things has to happen here. Either I'm going to go to this house, get a job, make some meetings, and life is going to get better, or it's not going to go well. And I have to learn how to pick myself up, dust myself off, and not drink or use over it. So Logistic Hair picks me up from rehab. We go to this house. I have my two trash bags and literally a dime to my name. Actually, I didn't even literally have the dime. It was on my ATM card. Um, I knock on the front door. The daughter, of my bunkmate answers the door and i hold up my bags and i go i'm here and she goes oh i'm so sorry we already rented the room and i turn around logistic hair is pulling out of the driveway and from the work i had done in rehab about learning about myself for the first time in my life again something happened I was confronted with a crisis, and I didn't lose my shit. You see, I had gotten very good at kicking, punching, screaming, like legit throwing furniture through walls when King Baby didn't get his way, that um, I stopped, I took a breath, and I just said, God, I'm out of options. Please take this. Um, I asked him if I could stay there that night. She said, yes, absolutely. But I found out there were drugs in the house, and one of the other Mm. tenants started beating the hell out of his girlfriend. And I'm thinking the police are going to come. I'm going back to jail. I retreated to a back bedroom, locked the door behind me, started saying St. Francis after serenity prayer after St. Francis after serenity. I went to bed that night with my hands clasped so tightly in prayer that I woke up the next morning and they were still clasped. And at nine o'clock on the dot, I called my counselor from rehab. I said, I'm in trouble. I don't know where to go. And uh, she dropped what she was doing. She gave me some phone numbers to call. She started calling places. She yelled across the hall to one of the other counselors. She goes, Lauren, RJ's in trouble. Do you know of anyone? And Lauren, one of the counselors there who's in the program, knew a guy named Bugsy. (laughs) Yes, there are Bugsies in the world. Um, (laughs) And he ran a recovery house in the Northeast. And uh, we called them. And a bed opened 10 minutes prior to my call. So the daughter piled me in the car and took me up there and that's the recovery house I was in for two or three days before I found roller derby. Um, and, um, and life got a lot better after that. Um, and, um, I, uh, developed a working knowledge of the steps. I started going to different meetings. I started sponsoring men and ladies and life got a lot better. Um, I was able to repair a lot of relationships. And uh, four, years, uh, four years and four months later, my sobriety day is January 27th, 2015, um, I now um, own my own home and um, am president of the Derby League. And, um, you know, I get the opportunity to do things today, like win dancing competitions and play roller derby. Um, And show up for my nephews and my niece and help out people when they call me at two o'clock in the morning and they're scared because they don't know what to do and they're afraid they're going to go out and relapse. Um, I get to show up today and I get to be a brother, a son, a friend, and um, I get to go through life on life's terms. Um, I was managing a painting company and the painting company folded out of nowhere the boss just like shut down the company while well, i was driving the company car and i was living in the house that was attached to the paint shop and that was my job so i lost my job my car and my home in one fell swoop and i remember calling my mom and saying i really don't know what to do which felt really nice because normally i would call her and say i have a problem you have to bail me out um and this was about a year and a half into my sobriety and she said why don't you get the cat and come home and live with me again being trusted with the key to her house again was massive and mom and I spent a good two and a half years together here in this house. Um, and uh, I got to make an amends to her right in the spot where I was arrested and take care of her and do her food shopping, which I should have been doing all along and did sometimes. But I really got the chance to show up and take her to doctor's appointments and sit on the, the front porch and have cigarettes with her when I still was smoking. Um, and uh, boy, was that nice. But she had been having some health problems and uh i went to work one morning i kissed her goodbye i told her i loved her and uh i came home at 11 o'clock to take her to a doctor's appointment and she had passed away um and i got to with my brother give her the most beautiful funeral and send her off with a eulogy that really embodied the grace and dignity that uh that was all she was about um and I've been able to keep that promise about being clean and sober uh, to her. And then a year ago, I bought this house on my own, um, so I get to stay with mom. And uh, you know, the Cardinals fly up sometimes, and and uh, I get to maneuver through the sadness now with tools that I didn't have before. Thanks, as a direct result to this program, a connection to a higher power which I don't understand and I will never understand it, but I all have to do is believe in it. And if I if I am receptive and willing to look at, for the signs, they are always right in front of me. And I have made the best group of friends who I know right now, if I sent out a text that said I'm in trouble or I'm hurting, I would get 10 texts back, five phone calls, and probably five people would show up at my door. Um, because when it comes down to it, none of us has to do any of this addict or not alone. And it's, it's nice to have a good support system. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think we're all crying a little bit. (laughs) Um, Including you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) But at least they're tears of joy rather than tears of despair.
1: Yes. That's
2: true. Yeah. So. Um, So you sort of mentioned this, that like, it's pretty unusual um. For people to stay in recovery, um, even after just two times of becoming clean, um, it is, you know, a really difficult path. Um, so what, what is the, how have you managed to stay in recovery and use your tools um, like you have, especially after your mother has passed?
0: it's i normally attribute it to three different things number 1 if i don't have willingness i don't have anything i'm not willing to be honest i'm not willing to do the footwork i'm not willing to go to meetings or willing to sponsor so willingness as a as a blanket i guess emotion or internal feeling is um is key and then um you know throwing it up to my higher power um is is also key i have a lot of talks with god a lot of them and you know sometimes um sometimes uh I feel a little bit better most of the time i do sometimes sometimes i'm still a little stuck but then i normally will say just show me the signs show me the signs and then i become kind of hyper vigilant and then i usually find a way that i can implement the third one which is service to others um and whether that's service to another addict who's suffering or um going to a meeting and talking to a newcomer or just service to my fellow human being um and uh i like to think this is just based on my experience, and I am not an expert on this in, by any stretch. I only have my own experience. That um, the the uh, recovering addicts that I generally see who have a um, a quality um, quality clean time, regardless of the amount, generally they stay in service and they have a deep connection to a higher power. Mm, um, mm-hmm. That's what I have seen specifically. Yes, the 12 steps work. Yes, meeting makers make it, is one of the slogans that, that you hear in there. Um, but I have always found in my experience, uh, just what I've been exposed to, that, that service to others and a close relationship with a higher power tends to work well. But if someone doesn't want it, they don't want it. And And our literature talks about it's probably best if someone is on the fence about the program, Leave the book in front of them or leave a pamphlet or or ask them if they want to go to a meeting as opposed to, you know, you really should go to you know this meeting or that meeting. Because if we push it on them, we're gonna we we run the risk of pushing them further away and then doing more harm than good. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden one of those resources is is off the board. Now you can go to any of the anonymous programs. Or, or there's a smart recovery that's non spiritually based. It's more of a practical based. Some people do meditation. Some people go to church. Um, I don't care whatever works for anyone, as long as, as long as, hopefully they understand that there is ample. There's an ample amount of help out there, Um, but it has to be sought out, and it can't be sought out without willingness. Um. So.
1: Christy and I were talking, um, and she has a question that she wanted me to ask you. Yeah, what is it? Is it uncomfortable to be around alcohol and drunk drunk people now, such as like when you're at PJRD and you know yep. that they have like derby Q and everything? Sure. Like how how do you handle that that mess, so to speak? That's,
0: that's well, the mess would be in my own mind, and what I what I know, you know i I don't ever want to. Um, begrudge anyone their good time. You know, it, it's it's I have to learn to keep everything on me. So what I have to do is I have to get in touch with how I'm really feeling and and be honest, like brutally honest with myself. And the good news is today, with a clear head and a clear conscience, I have a fully functioning conscience. I know, I know most of the time I'd like to think. I know when I'm trying to trick myself or I'm trying to stay in a situation out of self-will that I should probably remove myself from. Case in point, I one of one of my closest friends of all time, I've known the daughter since before she was born. She got married last year. and it was a beautiful ceremony in Bucks County, went to the ceremony, beautiful time, and we got to the reception or I should say I got to the reception. I was there by myself. Um, And I was sad because, you know, mom had just passed and I wish she were there with me. Um, But everyone was, everyone was drinking and it was like 95 degrees in there and it was 95 degrees outside. And I don't think I'm exaggerating there. It was disgusting. And I'm wearing like a three piece suit and I'm sweating and I got really antsy and I just... I had to leave and I'm driving away and the mom starts texting me, where are you? Are you okay? And I pulled over on the side of the road and I'm crying so hard because I don't, I don't want to upset her. It's her daughter's wedding. Um, And, um, and I said, I'm sorry, Marianne, I had to leave. I felt like my sobriety was being threatened and I just had to leave. And I pushed send and I literally bit my thumb until she texted back and she said, I'm so proud of you for doing what you needed to do. Um, because sometimes you know the anticipation of a reaction is worse than the reaction itself. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I'm blessed that I have people in my life who understand that my recovery has to come first because without it, I don't have roller derby, I don't have Rutgers, I don't have this house, I'm not able to show up to help my nephew with his math homework. So if there are times I have to divorce myself from a situation, I do it and I do it unapologetically. One of the things I learned from the, the step work that I did was that my biggest character defect is something we talk about in the program, character defects. My biggest character defect was that I had been looking for self-worth from other people my entire life. Like I would be nice to someone because I wanted something from from them. Or I would piss someone off because someone else hated them and I wanted to get back at that person. Or I would hold a conversation with you and I would self-deprecate so you would disagree with me so that would build me up in some bass-ackwards way. Um, because I was always looking for approval from other people. And something I heard in the rooms one night is what anyone thinks of me, good or bad, is none of my business. And it changed my life. Because if I keep it on myself and I just do what I consider to be aligned with my higher powers, will, the next right thing, everything works out. And if it doesn't work out or someone disagrees with it, well, then we're just going to have to disagree with it. Because I'm not interested in, nor am I committed to, um, for lack of a better phrase, throwing my life away again, I may not get another chance.
2: Um, So you talked a little bit about um, like making everybody should have a chance for recovery. And um, especially since you're coming from a part of New Jersey, that is very low income and is going through, I think, a lot of a lot of, I don't want to say growing pains so because it's not growing, but a lot of issues surrounding that mm-hmm. issues with drugs, with well, a lot of it with drugs, poverty, unemployment, violence. So, how, violence. so much violence. So much violence. That, how do you have any ideas of how to make things like rehab and recovery um, accessible for the people who need it the most? So people who are coming from places like Camden, who, you know, again, like like you, they didn't have the coping skills and they didn't know like anything else. But I, that's one my one thing. Um, so I got my MSW from Rutgers. Okay. The one thing I'm really passionate about, is like making things really accessible to people. And rehab is so great and can be really such a good tool. And like you've talked about, like help address all these underlying issues that are um, causing people to choose to use because they don't know anything else. Right. And, you know, but it can be really inaccessible for people who really need sure. it because it can be expensive or it's going to be a state run program, which may or may not be effective.
0: Right. It's I I I wish I wish I had a really salient answer for that, but I don't. Um, you know, some people need to hit their individual rock bottoms before they get to a point where they're in a hospital or talking to a social worker or a caseworker who recommends a rehab and then there are times that for example you know if someone has that glimmer of willingness where they want to call a rehab and the the rehab says you know um you know we're booked up right now call back the next day that could be fatal to someone who decides mm-hmm. to put another one in them um the problem is also not a problem but but just a situation is in the rooms of recovery especially in the anonymous programs one of our traditions is we don't advertise um, because, uh, you know, money, prestige, power gets in the way of that and it, and it blurs the primary purpose, which is to take the message to other addicts and alcoholics. Um, so I wish, you know, I wish I had, um, I wish I had a better answer there for you, but I will say this, I, I feel like there is, you know, re- we always we always learn in the rooms and we hear this a lot. the drugs were not the problem they were a symptom of the problem there was an underlying issue and one of my friends the other day actually posted something that i thought was so brilliant um it was a a meme that said marijuana isn't the gateway drug trauma is Mm -hmm. because a lot of a lot of people have an issue and then they don't know what to do about it It certainly was the case with me and i was like oh my god that's brilliant Mm -hmm. um so i wonder if there's a way you know trauma care as a way uh, of of somehow you know preventing the the drug use from becoming rampant, I see it with my students at Rutgers all the time, and obviously I won't name names. But you know, students come to me on probation, which ends up being a symptom of a greater underlying cause. Um, but um, but to get back i, I to to your original question, I wish I knew how to make it more accessible. I don't know enough about the system, but I do think that trauma care and trauma therapy um, would definitely be. Um, A place to start.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you were talking about trauma and, you know, being at Rutgers and, you know, being in and near Camden. I'm just thinking to myself, like, there's there's trauma, but then there's, like, that generational cultural trauma that is— And community trauma. And community trauma that happens in low-income communities that are also communities that are black and brown and, you know, just people of color across the board indigenous communities as well and there's that trauma that goes completely undiagnosed and that's why all these communities are at risk of higher addiction rates mm-hmm. and it's just like we need to do something across the board for trauma and coping mechanisms and early intervention for everything yes like, that that that's like my soapbox of like early intervention just do it it goes all the way to the top. <laughs> um so what are you most proud of
0: oh boy <laughs> what am we i most some proud really of hidden
1: questions here
0: i mean <laughs> i'll give you i'm gonna give i'm gonna give you a couple of answers here that's okay because number one i'm I'm really proud that I took over the house and I now have a mortgage for the first time in my life and the house is still standing and all the bills are paid. <laughs> <laughs> like the other day I was like, oh, maybe I should renovate and maybe this. And I was like, RJ, the house hasn't burned down and all the bills are paid, you're winning. And the, mo- the lawn is mowed. So like, you know, like not <laughs> bad, not bad. Um, but I think I'm definitely proud of my clean time. However, I am not a big fan that time matters. It's the quality of the moment to moment. And I think the thing that I am the most proud of is being able to extract the beauty and recognize it and appreciate it from moment to moment in just the little things in life. Um, being able to show up and be in the moment, be present, listen to people and not not want anything in return. Um yeah it's it's i think what i'm most proud of these days are simple things being able to manage tasks um intuitively knowing how to handle situations that would have just messed me up completely uh yeah
1: you have a lot of things to be proud of thanks you did awesome you did fucking awesome man
0: thanks
2: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our interview with RJ. We um, learned a lot. Um, maybe cried a lot because I know that we both did. Um, if you want any information about addiction Recovery Services, um, we're going to put those in the show notes. Um and if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can send us an email at frowpowpodcasts at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at
1: frowpowpodcasts. Barp, barp, If you have something that you want to share with RJ, send it to us and we'll get it to him as well. And you can find us on
2: Instagram and Facebook at podcast because I said it weird the first time. Um, And, you know, if you like us, you should subscribe to our podcast so we know you love us. And as always, don't be a dick. dick.